issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who likes their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you have one friend you think might like today's episode too, please pass it along. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, we are in part three of our four-part series on the national debt. And in the last two episodes, we talked about the mechanisms of the U.S. debt market and the budget-making process. And it is beginning to seem like we have a Congress incentivized to spend money without raising taxes and a debt market that is all too willing to let that happen. Now, we all know the trees don't grow to the sky. So... Are there historical parallels that can tell us how this all plays out? Well, it just so happens that Barry Eichengreen, professor of economics and political science at UC Berkeley, co-authored a new book entitled In Defense of Public Debt that does just that. It outlines the history of sovereign debt, how it was used, and what happens to those debts when they go bad. In this conversation, Barry helps frame the current situation in the U.S. in a historical perspective, and I learn of an inherent weakness in the democratic nature of our nation's finances. I will be back at the end to comment on that. So we are right now in Boston where I'm recording this suffering from a terrible ice storm. Uh, They've canceled school. My kids are home. And there's a game of Monopoly going on just right down the hall from me right now, which seems very apt given our conversation, to be frank. But at any rate, for the listener and for you, Barry, uh, game night in the Sally household tends to get pretty raucous. So we may hear some yelling, some screaming and so on. It is the normal course of affairs in this house. So with that noise disclaimer out of the way, Barry, we can jump in. Did you have something you wanted to add to that? Only I didn't recall that players could borrow in order to build hotels on Park Place. They cannot borrow. They cannot borrow. So I guess not entirely related. It's economic, let's say, loosely related. As far as our conversation goes, Barry, we've been exploring the the role of debt in U.S. government and the potential perils it it poses. And so far in this series, we've looked at the mechanism of the U.S. debt market, how it works, who buys it, why do they buy it, how much is out there. We've looked at the spending aspect. So are we using that money wisely? Are we investing it in a way that's going to return? And, you know, really what I'm, I'm hoping this conversation does for us is, is really gives us an understanding of kind of the broader view and I've dug into some of your work. I'd found you via a paper you wrote on cryptocurrency. And then, of course, found your book, In Defense of Public Debt, which for you listening is a comprehensive overview of the role of sovereign debt throughout history. And so I'm hoping we can pull some lessons to help us better understand some of the potential pitfalls of not addressing it. I applaud the motivation. We're speaking in a week when the New York Times had an article on the front page about federal government debt approaching 
$30 trillion and asking the question of whether this posed a existential threat to the United States and, and the U.S. economy, a historical perspective really is necessary in order to begin to get your mind around those questions. In your book, and you cite maybe what's the earliest historical example of sovereign debt. And can you tell that story? Because I found that fascinating. Well, we look at the Greek city-state of Syracuse. Aristotle recounted how Syracuse borrowed from its citizenry in order to finance campaigns against its enemies, and how the Temple of Delos lent to a number of other Greek city-states. Temples were charged with managing the finances of their members. They were religious foundations, basically. And we can piece together from marbles that are housed in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, England. What happened to those loans? They didn't turn out well. The borrowers uh, were unsuccessful in their military campaigns and therefore couldn't pay back what they borrowed. The loans went into default. The temple had to be reorganized financially. So mm -hmm. sovereign borrowing and lending by states and problems uh, associated with the practice go way, way back. How do you restructure a temple? Uh, the, the marble at the Fitzwilliam doesn't tell us how that was done exactly. Okay. So I think um, subject for future research by right. archaeologists. The ancient shadow banking system. And this may be a dumb question is, is there any idea as to why sovereigns chose debt over taxation? So I tell my students, there are no, no dumb questions if you've done your reading, and you clearly have okay. been. Sovereigns borrow instead of or in addition to taxing their citizens because of emergencies. Throughout history, the concept of a national emergency, there are limits on, on how much tax revenue a sovereign can raise in short order, when all of a sudden expenses balloon and you have to pay your army or hire mercenaries in order for the state and indeed the sovereign himself to survive, that's the concrete answer. And from an economic point of view, if you have a short-term emergency, it makes more sense to spread the cost of meeting that emergency out over time. You don't want to tax away people's entire incomes, leaving them to starve or not be able to pay their rent, but rather the state will borrow in order to finance exceptional expenses now and meet the cost over time by raising everyone's taxes a little bit. There's a definite parallel I see with the whole COVID stimulus where you don't necessarily want to kill the economy by overburdening them with taxation. So you take out debt as a way to keep things status quo while this emergency is addressed. Historically, now, historically we do see states borrow, not only in order to meet military emergencies, but to deal with the fallout from pandemics. We see states borrow in order to deal with emergencies of all kinds. The Europeans at the moment are contemplating how much they will have to borrow 
to meet the emergency of climate change. Yeah, so in the beginning, sovereign debt is really used or primarily used for national defense or to fund wars for that matter, offensive wars. And then that changes. It begins to change in the 19th century, really, as states take on additional responsibilities. They are consciously trying to grow the economy, encourage industrialization and sustained economic growth. So they borrow in order to expand and improve ports, to build railway systems linking the coast to the interior, to invest in urban lighting and sewer systems because a lot of economic growth and innovation occurs in urban areas. And then in the 20th century, we have the shift toward the welfare state, where the state not only is engaging in economic development projects, but it is helping with problems of unemployment, health insurance, and so forth. There is a little bit of a mystery or paradox with that last shift. It's it, it's pretty clear why states would borrow in order to build railways. That's a project you have to invest a lot in now, and the payoff comes only over many years. But why states in the 20th century often borrowed in order to finance ongoing social programs is less clear. You could say they borrowed when times were tough to help people with income maintenance and other things they needed, but why didn't they pay back when times were good? And there, I think there's a set of issues around political economy and around your favorite topic of political polarization that we can come back to. <laughs> and we'll get into this a little further on, but one of the interesting things that popped into my head as I was reading your book was the idea that sovereign debt's really now kind of a three-way negotiation. So we think of it often as a nation borrowing from, you know, a bank or another nation or, or, or what have you. But really that negotiation exists between the government, the lender, and the people. And I think if we look at the welfare state, you know, one of the things we've explored in this podcast before is the political unrest that came about, especially due to the Great Depression and the way states dealt with that. But I think at that point in time, the negotiating power was very much on the side of the populace, on the side of the people who bore the brunt of it. And so the government had a choice, which is either to, you know, put their force behind it or to fall apart. And, you know, one of the topics we've talked about before, just as an example, are the, you know, the bonus armies during the Hoover administration and how they chose to break out the U.S. Army to break it up. So I'll pause there. I've filibustered a bit, Barry, but do you have any no, comments that, on that, that part? Or I think that's a really interesting episode. So Herbert Hoover uh, called out Douglas MacArthur and, and, and the U.S. Army to put down protesters ringing the U.S. Capitol in 1931, demanding their World War I bonuses. And that resulting fiasco is... Uh, large part of the reason why Hoover lost in FDR won. What happened next? FDR decided to take the U.S. off the gold standard and reflate the economy, try to push prices back up to where they had been in 1929 as part of the 
solution to the Great Depression. And we know that inflation tends to be good for debtors. Deflation tends to be good for creditors. So you can see who was more firmly in the driver's seat when FDR and the Democrats come to power in 1933. And the other aspect of this that's interesting is that in order to take the U.S. off the gold standard in 1933, FDR has to default on the gold clauses in U.S. Treasury bonds. So U.S. Treasury debt had a clause in it that said the bondholders will be paid back in dollars of constant gold content, dollars that can't be inflated. And FDR basically revoked those clauses, leading to a Supreme Court case in 1935, where the creditors tried to get what they had been promised previously. And the Supreme Court basically said, when circumstances change, force majeure, the government is justified in changing these legal provisions. So there are all kinds of, uh, of interesting aspects of that, of the history you brought up that very much bear on public debt and yeah. political power issues. It's, it's almost like a soft default in a way, or restructuring that he did there. Following that period, the U.S. incurred a massive amount of debt, and that was to fund the, the war effort. And this kind of gets into the issue of how debts are resolved once they're incurred. But I'm curious as to how the U.S. managed to take on so much debt after that default, or why there was still an appetite for U.S. debt after FDR effectively restructured the entire arrangement. I think the U.S. case after 1933 is representative of a broader class of debt servicing episodes where the uh, government does something that makes the creditors unhappy. If the debt is denominated in the country's own currency, the government inflates. If the debt is denominated in foreign currency, the government defaults. And those actions can have some costs as well as benefits. But one thing they don't do is bar the government from borrowing again. So if the government can put credible reforms in place, do what the creditors expect, maybe balance its budget, maybe put in place a pegged exchange rate or an inflation targeting regime like the Federal Reserve has, at that point, the government can get back into the bond market, issue debt again, often on terms that are that are not much inferior to what it had been able to do before. So forgive if credible policy reforms are put in place, and then forget. The hard default on debt is something we'll get to in a bit as well. But one example you cite, or one way of resolving debt, is the one that seems the most sensible to, I think, most of us, which is paying it off and running some sort of budget surplus. And you cite a couple of examples. Could you talk a little bit about those? We look, for example, at Great Britain after the French and Napoleonic Wars, after 1821. Britain was more heavily indebted relative to the size of its economy than the United States is today. But it essentially paid off all of that debt over the succeeding 90 years by running budget surpluses year after year for nine decades. We look at the United States 
after the Civil War. Uh, the Union government came out of the Civil War less heavily indebted than Britain 40 years before, but it succeeded in, in essentially extinguishing that debt, paying it all off over the subsequent 50 years. And we look at France after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, when the French were worried about another conflict with Germany in the not-too-distant future, and they retired much of their debt so that they would be able to borrow again when the next problem, the next conflict arose. Hmm. And one, one question I have for you on that front is what the impact was on the economies. Because we did an episode a while back, this would be in January of 2020 for uh, those of you interested in listening to it. And it, 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 we, it made the claim that Great Britain managed to pay down their debt after the Napoleonic Wars by running this surplus. But they also did so at the expense of investment in things like education and infrastructure. And that had some repercussions later on. So, you know, by the time Great Britain was done paying off this debt, Prussia had surpassed it in terms of education, in terms of industrial, in, in terms of industrial growth and such. Is there merit to that argument? There are libraries full of books on what economic historians refer to as British relative economic decline. Why was the British economy overtaken by Prussia, by the United States, by others? And uh, I don't read that literature as pointing to debt retirement and underinvestment in physical and social infrastructure as the main reason. People point to problems with British entrepreneurship, that the people who are running the businesses inherited them from their parents and grandparents. Clogs to clogs in three generations is the way the literature puts it. It points to British foreign investment the Brits were investing abroad rather than at home. And that foreign investment was much larger in magnitude than the revenues that the, the British government devoted to debt retirement. So in, in a nutshell, I would answer no. I don't think that the debt retirement strategy was a major factor. Okay. So the the other option then aside from running a budget surplus is to effectively outgrow the debt so the debt relative to gdp continues to shrink the last time that happened in american history was after world war ii but in a lot of ways i almost feel like post world war ii we kind of won the lottery demographics were in our favor we had suffered the least damage is is there aside from the u.s are there other examples of countries successfully outgrowing their debt or is there evidence that that's a successful or realistic strategy? There are plenty of other examples. In the third quarter of the 20th century, what was true of the United States was true of Japan, Western Europe, uh, a, a variety of middle-income countries as well, because the third quarter of the 20th century was a remarkable period of growth worldwide. For me, the interesting and important question is, is there hope for something similar now, going forward, as governments are so heavily indebted, you pointed to less favorable demographics today 
And I think that's a, a major headwind. So I sit on the fringes of Silicon Valley and I feel funny sometimes pointing to the numbers, which show that, you know, where we got 360 characters rather than flying cars, that all this innovation is not showing up in the aggregate technological progress figures in the way that innovation did show up in, in rapid productivity growth in the third quarter of the 20th century. So there was back then a big backlog of technologies that could be taken off the shelf because countries hadn't been able to invest in the Great Depression of the 1930s or the wartime decade of the 1940s. So that's going to be hard to do again going forward. It's interesting you bring that up too, Barry, because I'm very familiar with the tech sector. And the valuations of tech companies are, are very much dependent on low interest rates. You know, if you're a subscription service, the, the valuation of your stock is much higher when interest rates are low. And of course, when liquidity is high, there's just more money in the stock market. And so I think this is favored wealth without requiring the productivity gains from it. Financial markets are, are elevated. Asset valuations are high by almost all historical standards. Profits economy-wide would have to grow at an unusually rapid rate, at an extraordinary rate for some years to justify the current high valuations. As interest rates now begin to rise, all that becomes even more true. So put it another way, low interest rates can boost economic growth in the short run. That's what the Fed thinks they do. But they can't guarantee that that economic growth will be sustainable as interest rates mm -hmm. go up, asset valuations typically come down, and companies that investors hoped were viable at the IPO stage may no, no longer be so. That's why one reason and among many why people are worried about the fallout from what the Fed now is necessarily doing in order to address the inflation problem. I want to I want to step back for a second because I think it's worth us going in, into some of the other ways that countries have resolved the issues of sovereign debt because there's a limit to taxation not just economically but also in terms of just what the citizenry will bear and we've conveniently been able to skirt that issue due to the fact that we can just continue to borrow at, at such low interest rates. You know, the, the, the second option out there, which is less favorable, is default. And we, we talked about the soft default in FDR in the 1930s, but there are some bigger ones out there. One of the ones we talked about in an earlier episode was the Bank of Amsterdam, because that's a very large, sophisticated economy that really failed under its own debt load. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe other examples of countries that defaulted and, and what happened there? The Dutch Republic is an interesting case where the capacity of the state to borrow was limited by decentralization, reflecting the fact that it didn't have its own capacity to tax. It had to rely on the individual provinces, which like to understate how many resources they had in order to limit how much <laughs> they have to give away to the center. But if you want to talk more broadly about defaults, I, I yeah. think you're right to distinguish 
soft default, which means in, in inflating away the value of, of the bonds held by the state's creditors, versus hard default, where the government simply says, we can't pay. What we typically see in history is that when the government has a payment problem, if its creditors are locals, they resort to this surreptitious, partial, inflationary device. If the creditors are foreigners, where and, and the debt is denominated in somebody else's currency, they can't print foreign currency. They can't inflate it away, but they can resort to outright default. So when do we see a hard default? When do we see a soft default? It depends heavily on the identity of the creditors. There are a couple of examples that, that you cited that I think are worth exploring here. The instance of Latin America, where, as you mentioned a moment ago, they didn't have their debt denominated in their own currency. And so they effectively had no choice but to default. What, what was the outcome of that? So we, we begin to see debt defaults by newly established Latin American republics almost as soon as they gain their independence from Spain in the 1820s when uh, a government borrowed in London in pound sterling and then found itself unable to earn the export revenues needed to pay the money back. They simply sent an envoy to London and told the bank that had sponsored the loan, we can't pay. The bank would help to assemble a committee of bondholders and they would negotiate. The typical outcome was that the bondholders would take half a loaf. Half a loaf is better than nothing. They would settle for 65 cents on the dollar. And if the government of the country that had defaulted put credible policy reforms in place, balanced its budget, put the currency on the gold standard, typically it could borrow again. So one of the peculiar puzzling historical phenomena we see in the 19th century and to an extent in the 20th is that the same countries, the same governments default repeatedly. They default, they get back into the capital market and borrow again. They default a second time. They negotiate with the bondholders. They get back into the capital market. They default a third time. These were the usual suspects. So the mystery is, why did the bondholders keep lending to these suspects? And the answer is, they were generously compensated. Typically, the interest rate on uh, a loan to Greece or Argentina was twice the interest rate on a loan to the UK Treasury. So when the loan performed, the income was high. So that's why they were prepared to resume lending to debtors with these checkered histories. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, you bring up Greece, because this kind of brings us into the modern era, where after the financial crisis, you know, Greece had a debt crisis of its own. And there were some fairly harsh austerity measures imposed on it that resulted in the election of a very hard left-wing government. And that's where the whole concept of, again, this three-way negotiation really started to gel for me. Because, you know, there's the what the government promises, but in a democracy, that government can change. 
And, you know, as I was trying to draw parallels between Greece and the situation here in the United States, and maybe the, the situation worldwide is, do you feel like in some way that's contributed to the rise in populism and, and a rise in, let's just call it in political instability? I, I, I do think the perception that during and after the financial crisis of 2008-2009, officials in the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve in their equivalents in other countries did too much to help Wall Street and too little to help Main Street. That perception, I think, was uh, a factor that first uh, manifested itself in Occupy Wall Street if you think back to that movement, and and then more generally in the kind of political polarization and populism that we've seen in a variety of places subsequently. We can look back on the response to the financial crisis, I think, and, and draw a number of conclusions. Mine would be that governments should have done more to help Main Street relative to, to Wall Street on equity grounds. Uh, it would have left a more favorable political legacy, but that contributed to the perception that governments helped the big guys. So we learned a little bit from that experience, but we saw a little bit of the same problem during the COVID crisis. We ended up giving relief checks in March of 2021 to households with family incomes up to $150,000 a year. Wouldn't it have been more efficient to limit that spending to the truly needy? And if we'd done that, Senator Manchin would be less concerned today about overwhelming federal debts inherited from the COVID crisis and might be more willing to support Build Back Better. So it's easy to say government should have done it differently, but the Fed part of the story are these low interest rates fueling inequality and contributing to political intolerance and extremism. Low interest rates help the poorest and they help the wealthiest because the poorest gain from the additional employment opportunities when the Fed is trying to support the economy and the wealthiest gain from those high asset prices, high stock markets. So maybe the people who are helped the least are the people in, in, in the middle and it's a lot of those people who have moved to more extreme political positions in the last 10 years. One of the things you mention in your book is the necessity of democratic institutions for a healthy debt market. I described before how Britain essentially retired its Napoleonic era debt in the 19th century. It did that in a period when the extent of the franchise, who could vote and who was represented in parliament was very limited. It was mainly land landowners and, and bondholders, people with an interest in the government paying off its debts. Debt management, which is what we're talking about, becomes more difficult in a democratic society when there is a universal franchise and everybody can vote. Then you have to forge a political consensus on what to do to stabilize and manage the debt. You have to get uh, political agreement on raising taxes, or you have to ag get political agreement on public spending. 
and democratic politics are messy. You know, I, I subscribe to Churchill's quip about how democracy is the worst possible system except for all the others. But we've seen many cases in history where societies have not been able to agree on how to manage their debts and dire consequences have followed from that failure. I, I even think with the last financial crisis, if you look at the outcome in Germany, their ability to get out of that without invoking populist rage was, was I think, a lot, very much due to their political system. When you look at the U.S. now, you know, do you see parallels between Weimar Germany and this country, or is that a stretch? So Weimar Germany after World War I is a great example where they couldn't agree on whether the workers or the industrialists should pay the taxes. The government printed money in order to finance the resulting budget deficits. You've got hyperinflation, and it's simplistic and a stretch, but not entirely inaccurate to say Germany got hyperinflation and then it got Hitler. So really dire consequences can follow from the failure and ability of a polity to agree on how to manage debt. And my, my reading is very much that it is encompassing coalition governments where different parties all have a seat at the table and they're able to forge a compromise that are most successful at meeting that challenge. So we, we should be deeply worried about the inability of the two political parties to work together to compromise mm -hmm. and how everything from gerrymandering to campaign finance to social media are making those, those kind of cross-party collaborations more difficult. So I, I tend to be an optimist about the economy and a, and a pessimist about the polity. I don't see these polarizing tendencies in the United States obviously reversing themselves anytime soon. And that, that is deeply worrying. So the analogy with Weimar Germany is overdrawn. But one can, can say that and also believe that these polarizing political trends are, are, are deeply troubling and they make satisfactory economic governance much more difficult. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review to tell everyone how great you thought it was. This podcast grows, as I always say, by word of mouth. Now, that book, again, is In Defense of Public Debt. It can be purchased wherever books are sold, and I will have a link to one such place in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just go to the homepage, click the link that says episodes in the upper right hand corner and you shall find. Now, couple things we learned today. One of the big complications of a democratic government is that taking on excess debt is always going to be preferable in political terms because nobody likes taxes and everybody likes spending. and. Unless the spending power is totally removed from Congress, or at least curbed, there's little reason to believe that we won't take on as much debt 
as the markets will allow. And as we talked about today, and frankly, in the past couple episodes, coalition governments are far more successful in meeting the challenges of debt crises than our own polarized system of government. It just goes to show again that the biggest threat we have to face isn't the size of the debt, but the fact we can't agree on how to pay it down. We have got one more episode left. I hope you will join me. Until then, as always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ooh, bye-bye.